1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. It says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's take a moment and ask God to give us His Spirit so that we would understand His instruction that if our desire is to order ourselves according to what Scripture has given, that all of the questions and all of the thoughts that we think as we read these passages, that God would, would give us grace. He would give us insight and discernment. So let's pray together. God, thank you for your presence with us. You've not left us alone. You've given us your spirit who indwells and strengthens and takes from Jesus and gives to us. Who makes our spirits renewed. God, it's your spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Father. And so I pray this morning that as we gather, as we're here, considering Scripture, in your words we pray, God, that your presence would be something that we're grateful for, something we sense. God, I pray for clear minds and eyes to see. We pray, God, that we would listen and hear well. I pray that I could be of benefit to your church, to your people. We're, we're your family. You're, you're the father. You're the gatherer here. So I pray, God, that whatever your desire and whatever your will would be for these moments that we share, we pray, God, speak and move in us. Give us unity of purpose and of mind and of heart and show us how to be faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought I'd just ask at the outset, why is a passage like this seemingly so delicate to handle? What are the reasons that I've had multiple people come up to me in the last month and say, oh, hey, when are you going to get to the end of that second chapter? It just doesn't happen often. No one came up to me and said, hey, hey, when are you going to get to that part about Hymenaeus and Alexander getting turned over to Satan, huh? 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 No one says that. But I think that we all know or have felt that even in the reading of these words that there is a delicate nature to this. And so I thought I'd just throw it out at the outset and ask the question, why? Maybe why are particular parts of Scripture, why do they hit us in, in different ways? And I thought of a few reasons that as we consider this bit of ordered worship specifically in relationship to others, why does it seem a little more delicate? I think the first reason would just be that it's about limits. It is about limitations. It is about putting things in places and then particular kinds of forbidding. And I would say that limits, generally speaking, are a human thing that we press against very, very often. We do not believe that limits or limitations or putting things into boundaries or places, that almost never feels good. And if that is to be the case, at least we get a little bit stirred up and say, well, let's prove it. Why does this limitation exist? And so one of the reasons it's delicate is because this is a passage about limits. It's about us saying, this will happen, this won't happen. Paul is as clear here as he is about nearly anything. So limitations are difficult, period. More than that, I think that the relationships between genders, specifically men and women, has been 
discussed in the larger culture continuously, nearly continuously in the philosophical world and in the pop culture of the world and in the news part of the world for nearly a hundred years, if not more. And there are specific ways of talking about these kinds of issues that if I could be honest as a reader in the 21st century, I don't know if you feel this or not, but it seems to me like as I read this passage, one of the things that someone might say is, is that Paul's not up to speed on the way you should talk about these kinds of things. You know, like according to the last hundred years, like the way we should talk about these things, it seems like he's not up to speed. And here's a, a couple of things I think that has given us pause or why this is so delicate to handle. One, I believe that the Bible itself in the wider culture has been largely relegated to a book of some good ideas that is sort of a take-it-or-leave-it approach kind of thing. But in large part, the cultural idea towards Scripture is dismissive. And that makes it possible for us, though we're committed to Scripture, to say, well, maybe the spirit of that age has some validity. More than that, I would just say that the culture as a whole is largely biblically illiterate. So when we read a text like this, it's always dangerous to take one particular text and, and proof text or out of context it, but for sure when we see a text like this, if we're not concerned with or think about the totality of the witness of Scripture, it can feel out of place and out of nowhere. So I think that's one issue, just like how do we handle the Bible and think about it? Do we order our lives under the teaching of Scripture? Is that a normal thing or not? And I believe that's changed largely in the Western world. Second, I think it could be said that culturally speaking, that feminism in all of its diversity and all of its arguments has impacted the way, now I'm, I'm not saying the outcomes, but the way that we talk about these issues. And if I could point out one of the difficulties concerning feminism, what I would say is, is that any distinction, it seems now that any distinction that is based on gender alone, any statement that highlights or puts into contrast the difference between genders is automatically placed into a philosophical system and a, and a worldview and a way of talking, it is automatically placed into the ring. In other words, competition, a conflict of powers, a leveraging, a putting one over, seems to be the constant suspicion of gender-based discussion. And I believe that that's largely driven by feminism. I'm not an expert on those movements. I don't wish to, to speak to, and I'm sure that there are people who could speak more eloquently and certainly more deeply. But what I would say is, the way we talk about gender, just bringing it up, everyone, I believe, has been taught to sort of put on your gloves. Like, this just needs to be fought over. There's ground to be won here. I think that's the spirit of the age. There's a way of describing the spirit of the age. It's, it's where the zeitgeist, sort of the unspoken water that we're swimming in, I believe is combative when it comes to gender roles. And I, I don't think this is an over-the-top statement but it's something that we live in. Third, I believe that in the wider culture, we have now more or less moved to the place where not only gender distinctions between men and women, but discussions in hard and fast categories concerning gender at all are rejected. In other words, language like this, from the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul, concerning the differences between men and women, is increasingly misunderstood and rejected in a world that really doesn't have very many specific gender categories at all. Someone said that the spirit of our age concerning these sorts of things is to speak in categories where all of us are androgynous humanoids. I think it was carbon-based androgynous humanoids. And so these things, this is the world that we're living in. 
And for better or for worse, what we need to do is consider and to think about, well, how am I positioned in that world? And is there good? And where there's good? What do I think about that? And then how does that work with this? And then where do I place myself when I find a passage like this? Now, since we're talking about culture, can I talk about us just a a little bit? I do believe, when I say us as a church, that there have been absolute times where misuse or abuse or legalism or harshness has characterized the way that the church has dealt with these issues as well. And everyone feels that. And so, I don't want to pretend in reading a passage like this, one of the reasons it needs to be delicate is because so many of us have had experiences where at a very minimum we just felt odd, like, well, this was handled in a poor manner. I would be at the minimum and maybe at a maximum level there are people who have been hurt to the point where they're just hanging on and say, I love Jesus and I know what He's done for me, but wow, the way this was handled and the hurt that I've experienced makes this hard. So we should just acknowledge we haven't always done this well. So, all of that leads me to say, and we should just say out loud, that despite church culture and our failures, despite world culture and its confusion, despite the limitations that we feel in reading a passage like this, it is our only hope and the only right thing to do to invite the Bible to order us. If we hold to and believe in the power of the gospel as given to us in Scripture, then it is the same Scripture that has the power to order us toward our greatest joy. To not come to a passage like this and to apologize, to not come to a passage like this, the last thing that I want to do is to take a reading of Scripture and the entirety of the time make it seem as though I'm miserable in describing what God has given so that I apologize for God in all of His obtuseness. As though I have to convince you and convince me that if only God had the foresight to understand how sophisticated we would be in the 21st century, He would have written Scripture differently. I think there is a way to teach through these passages that handles it like that, and I don't want to do that. My desire and my prayer for us has been that as we come to a passage like this, that it would be the Spirit of God that gives us the humility to embrace limitations that it would be the Spirit of God that would give us the courage to order ourselves according to limitations, that it would be the Spirit of God that would allow us to see our blind spots and to repent properly when we've handled these issues poorly, to be honest about that, and to work toward greater unity. So my desire is to present to you a case for the ordering of worship, specifically as it relates to genders and men and women, and to offer it to you as God's gift to us for our joy. And to ask us to say, let's consider these things and imagine and say, well, what does God's design tell us about the way that this works? So I'll say up front, ordered worship as it relates to men and women And here are the four big ideas that we're going to think about. What does masculinity look like? That's the first one, masculinity. Second, femininity. What does that look like? Third, I would say teaching and authority in the church. What should that look like and how does that work? And then finally, what is the hope of ordered worship? What is the the final focus of ordered worship? So, are you with me? We're ordered worship concerning men and women. We got masculinity, femininity, teaching and authority in the church, and then finally, all our hope. That's a big introduction. Let me say at the outset that Four Oaks Midtown, if you are in the know or if you're thinking about the way that we'd order ourselves and according to scriptures like this, we are what many would call complementarian as a church. A complementarian simply means this, that we see that from the beginning of creation, referenced here by Paul, that God created in His image, image bearers, that in their being and in their essence and in their value and in their dignity, God created complementary genders, that the fullness of His image was given to us 
not in part with solely male and not in part with solely female, but it was the union of these two, the creation of the two, given as complementary image bearers that marks humanity. And we believe that that pattern, given before sin, before the fall, before the the inclusion of stubbornness and, and leveraging for power and selfishness, that pattern given before all of that entered into the world is God's best and good design for the way that men and women should function. So we are complementarian as a church. I would say this, there are implications of being complementarian as a church. In other words, we believe that the full image of God, the essence of God, the value of God and dignity is placed in male and female alike. However, there is distinction between the two. They are not the same. God did not create two completely conformed or, you know, un, dis, un how can you say, a non-distinction. But these genders have distinction. They're different. They're different in form. They're different in function in many, many ways. And so there's a lot of places where this complementarianism would have an implication, right? It would have it in relationships between people within the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. It would have implications in marriage, and I think Scripture speaks to those things. However, we're going to, and I believe that 1 Timothy 2 specifically speaks to the way that the church, within the ordered gatherings of the church, the way complementarianism works out. I'll give you a few reasons that we see here, the thing that we we believe that the totality of the Bible speaks in this direction. Not only creation and its pattern and the descriptions therein, but then God and the way that he organizes his people and the calling of Abram and the patriarchs down through the ages. They are not by any means the sole figures in God's plan of redemption. However, it is clear that there is a pattern of male leadership in God's plan down through. By no means the sole figures, but a clear pattern. We believe that Jesus chooses 12 male disciples not by accident, but by pattern. And that the early church patterned themselves after the same thing, again, not by accident, but because they saw a pattern in God's design and in Jesus' teaching. And so the apostles the leadership of the early church, were male. The teaching of Scripture as a whole, then, not only in practice, but in clear principles, indicates that men and women have distinct roles, even within the life of the church. In response to this, the church historic, down through the last couple thousand years, has nearly universally held to this reality that there are limitations, there are distinctions, and there is an ordering, a gender-based ordering in the life of the worship of the church. And so we would say that through all of those reasons, as well as passages that are clear, like 1 Timothy chapter 2, we, call, we would call ourselves complementarian. We seek to take the principle of God's beautiful design in giving His full image to male and female and to show that in all of its glory in the life of the church. So, what does complementarity look like in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as it comes to men? And I should note that it's not as though verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the first time that Paul has addressed Timothy and said, you really need to address the masculinity, the males in your church. Up to this point, in fact, the opening verses were largely about people who were promoting speculation and divisions, who were getting distracted and were aloof, those who were fighting, so much so that it was pulling people away from the teaching of Scripture. It was the men, likely, who were teaching confident assertions about things they knew nothing about. They were arrogant and uninformed and ignorant. And again here now, In the ordering of the worship of God's people, he says in verse 8, here's the list, that men need to be encouraged to be at least these things. One, present. True masculinity in the church means that males will be present. They will show up. Second, they will be prayerful. 
They will be prayerful men. Third, that they will be holy. He says, I desire then that every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. This is not just a church nicism. It means that men ought to aspire to and cultivate a life, an inner life in them that offers unto God and to all under their care and around them a life that is full of the righteousness of God, not self-serving, not sensual, not greedy for gain, not leveraging for power, but holy. And fourth, so the, the three things that he, re- he references here, to be present, to be prayerful, to be holy, and to be peaceable. Paul is telling Timothy, there is a problem in ordered worship. People are distracted from the teaching of the gospel because those guys over there continually fight and try to one-up one another, and they're arguing and bringing a spirit of quarreling and anger into the church. So this direction about masculinity in the church needs to be considered, I believe, and is the backdrop for the limitations given later, and I would say for both genders, for men who are not in teaching positions and in authority, because that's a role of elders given in the New Testament, for all of us, men who don't serve in these roles and for women who also do not serve in these roles, wouldn't it be great if what characterized masculinity in our churches is that men were present, they showed up in every place. They didn't allow the spiritual leading of their lives or of their family lives or of their friends largely up to the initiation of women. You know, it can be clearly stated, one of the well-known facts concerning the demographics of the church in the Western world is that more women show up way more of the time. And I don't even mean just mere presence in the pews. I mean show up with an intent to learn. Show up with an intent to serve. Show up with an intent to build real relationships. Show up with, a tent to, with an intent to organize and to help and to welcome. That is growingly, I believe, to the church's shame and to its disordering, a pattern in the Western church what that tells me is that Paul's command or his saying to Timothy, tell them to show up, needs to be given to us as well. Presence. Men's presence in the church. And then not only their presence, but their desire to say, how can I leverage my whole self to serve others here? To show up and with an intent to learn and to be engaged. More than that, wouldn't it be great and uh, an enjoyable thing? And wouldn't it be something that we would see as a gift from God if those same men who were showing up were consistently and constantly prayerful, that that marked our lives, that you were being stopped and harassed by the men in the church to say, how can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? I want to be praying. I'm going to God. I'm intercessing for you. You know the gap between you and all the problems you have and God? I'm throwing myself in between there. What can I pray for? If the men in our church were marked, all of their passion for words and arguments and backs and forths and understanding things, if just a little bit of that articulation and passion was directed toward God in public prayer, how wonderful this would be. I believe that much of the ordering of God's people, God's design for us, is built upon the idea that the men who are going to take these roles, because of the limitations that are given here, lived holy lives. Lived holy lives. One of the problems I believe that we have in receiving scriptures like this that seem to go against the spirit of our age is that we simply cannot imagine it working well. So fathering, when done well, is an unspeakable gift in the world. And when you can imagine the moments when fathering is done just beautifully, just great, you have no problem with the concept of fathering. It is our fallen world 
that gives us the sin of harshness and aloofness and overly strict discipline of neglect. And so, rather than receiving a concept like fathering with joy and saying, God, thank you for that gift and for identifying yourself as that, so many of us have to overcome the fallenness of the world. We hear that word and there's just a mix of things immediately. And I believe that when we read a passage like this, one of the difficult things, and and I'm included in this because here I am, I'm teaching, and I have a a title and a role that has influence and leadership in the church, and I think to myself, am I offering a life of righteousness so that people think, well, no, this is a gift. I mean, if if God ordered it so that a person like this had influence in teaching in the church, then I, I think he's doing a good thing. I think we ought to recognize that the opposite is also true. If and wherever scoundrels are leading the church, it's just not going to feel like a gift from God. And so, Paul says to Timothy, I desire that in every place, here's what the men should be looking like. They should be there. They should be prayerful. They need to have holy hands, actual righteous lives. And then more than that, could you please tell them to be peaceable? The kind of people who are approachable, full of grace, quick to listen, slow to speak, not angry. The spirit in men, masculinity in the church, ought not to be marked by those who can be the most cantankerous, those who have the best put-downs, the best comebacks, those who can leverage themselves the most. And I would also say this, it should not be the masculinity in the church is marked by those who can be the loudest but peaceable, serene of spirit, seeking reconciliation. That is what men should be like. It seems as though, at least in Ephesus, and I'm so glad we don't have any of these problems, but it seems like at least in Ephesus, men were prone to conflict and division, and men were maybe prone to sort of not showing up because of other interest in life. And, and when they got there, men were prone a little bit to be disengaged. And I think this is a universal, you know, thing. We, we can be disengaged. So that's masculinity in the church. He says, I desire this. Then he moves, likewise, and this little refrain, likewise, is consistent in Paul's writing. It's one of the ways that he says, and also, not completely separated from what comes before, but slightly different and to add on to. And also, and then he describes femininity in the church. Now, this is going to give us a wonderful ability, at least one of the first places, to consider the idea of principle and practice. Principle and practice. I believe that there are tons of commands in Scripture that make make us aware of and mean that we need to get these things down pat. So, just a reminder, I read it once, but here's what it says concerning this. Likewise, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So there is a principle at play here. The principle that is given is universal and extends as far as humans exist. And that is that what God seeks is modesty and self-control and respectability. So women, when they show up, and here he addresses specifically the way that they adorn themselves, though he's using adorn as a sort of double meaning kind of thing, what they actually put on, and then the way they conduct themselves, with respectability, with modesty, and with self-control. Now, I might just add that those are things that all Christians should desire to be. So, specifically, what femininity should look like, but of course, those are words that could apply and should apply universally to all. However, in this case, we go from principle, the universal rule, to the practice. Well, what is this going to look like day to day? And I will say that at this point, I believe that we need to be content with and actually pursue what we're going to need in order to to fill the gap in between principle and practice. What we're going to need is spirit-led wisdom. And so often what is required in Scripture in order to actually apply the principles that are there to put them into practice is a kind of wisdom that will feel, let's say this, it will feel subjective at times. In other words, 
How do you define the word respectable as it comes to apparel? Now, I've never been in these conversations, but I can imagine girlfriends, you know, have conversations about things like this. Oh, girl, you can't wear that. Oh, I need to, you know, I I need to ask someone about this. There's difference of opinions in this, right? How do we describe, well, what is respectable when it comes to apparel? How do we know what modesty looks like? And in this day and age, Paul says, well, here's some things that should be obvious. He gives some examples. I think that the idea here is that these would have maybe been things that were to bring attention to oneself. It is likely that the particulars of the way that he defines modesty and self-control and respectability here, it's very possible these particulars were related to Roman culture and greater Ephesus. It was a way that women would have showed extravagance and wealth. You know how there's certain things that just more or less show off a person's status? I remember when AirPods first came out. Remember those things in the ear? It was kind of funny. Like in the first couple months when they came out, I don't remember what they were. They seemed like they were a million dollars, like 200 bucks for a pair of headphones or something. And I remember there's just this weird thing when people were walking around with them that you just thought to yourself like, oh, oh, okay, you can get those headphones, huh? And here's the thing, those things change. I remember when I was in seventh grade, there was a friend of mine. We drove to an away basketball game to go watch some friends. And in his mom's car, there was a car phone. We could drive in the car and make a phone call. This was the most wild thing in the universe. It was ostentatious. Who would need such a thing? I remember thinking, this family is so over the top. We just begged him, can we call people in places? So we call all our friends. You know what we're doing right now? We're driving on the interstate. No, no, seriously, I'm on the interstate. In other words, something like that, showing someone your car phone could be a way to boast and to put yourself in a position to say extravagance and I'm drawing attention to myself. Now, nowadays, if someone showed you their built-in car phone, it would be the opposite. Like, this would be a way to get yourself made fun of. So what happens here is the principle of don't be extravagant and self-serving, be respectable, be modest, that principle remains, but it turns out that the particulars are going to change. And we all need to be comfortable with the idea, I know it would be easier if God had an appendix to Scripture that showed for any given year, for the next 15,000 years, here's what modesty looks like. Only shop at, only wear this, Don't ever talk about this. Don't buy these things. But it turns out that in order for us to put the principle into practice, we're going to need spirit-led wisdom. On the flip side, though some things will be subjective, on the flip side, there needs to be enough evidence at any given time that you are walking in fear of God and saying, I know there's a principle and I want to follow it. In other words, there can be what you could hear from me when I just said that. Well, the particulars will change. It's a little bit subjective. You need spirit-led wisdom over time. What you could have heard from that is, oh, it just doesn't matter what I do then because it all changes all the time anyway. And sometimes if you hear that, I would say, well, no, no, no. Like, suppose you were dragged into court. Is there enough evidence to convict you of holding the principle? Because you have to have the principle in view somewhere. And so what is happening here is that over the course of time, through spirit-led wisdom, I do not believe the principle has changed at all. These women, the particulars of braided hair and golden pearls, was a way to show in their culture extravagance, to put themselves above. It was also a way in many instances in Roman culture in Ephesus, the way that you wore jewelry or did your hair indicated that you were free and autonomous, not under authority. And then more than that, and perhaps a little bit more more difficult and more disruptive to worship, in many instances, the way that women would have dressed and come in would have just showed themselves as, I would just call it in the most clean of ways, available. There were all kinds of temples 
with all sorts of temptations for people to hire women. And so, Paul has in view here and tells Timothy, okay, here's the thing. You're gathering together to worship. We want to proclaim the gospel. We need to focus on Jesus. The men are being jerks and not being there at all, and they're not holy, and they're not praying. And then sometimes the women come in, and they're being extravagant and showing themselves and drawing attention, and they're not keeping modesty in view, and they're trying to to make it clear and known to everyone that they're not under anyone's authority or rules. And then worse than that, showing availability, and this stuff needs to stop. Peter lived in the same world, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, it seems like he has a very similar idea here. I don't know what it is about the braiding of hair, but it was apparently a big deal back then. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter, almost word for word, upholds the principle that Paul has given to Timothy. So femininity in the church, as they gather together, should be marked by respectability, modesty, and self-control. I do not want to make a handbook for these things. Does it help anyone to know that we have not installed the dress code? Because I'll say that out loud. There's no dress code. But I do believe that the heartbeat, the heartbeat should be that as we gather, that we are marked, both men and women, by these things. So this moves us to verse 11, verse 11 and 12 which is what I would just call teaching and authority in the church, then how do we relate? Once we're there and positioned and relating to one another in these particular ways, well, then how are we ordered in the actual worship of the church? And here Paul is direct. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, and I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Here Paul indicates that the proper ordering of God's people when they come together in worship is for men to take the lead in these two key areas, teaching and exercising authority. Now, much has been made about this passage, and there are a lot of questions that could come from, well, what does this look like, and how does this happen, and when do we know? I did not have time on a morning like this to answer all of those questions. So yesterday, I spent a couple hours with Brian, and we recorded a podcast you guys remember the Four Oaks Midtown podcast, available wherever podcasts are found? Remember that podcast? So maybe that would be helpful because we spend a bunch of time talking through, well, what are the kind of questions that come up? We go in-depth and in detail a lot of the categories that I've brought up this morning. We're trying to have a deeper conversation because I really want to help. I know the list of particular questions and specifics that come out of things like this. So we recorded the podcast. It'll be on the interwebs. You can find it. Feel free to interact with it. But I would just say this. I believe that Paul's teaching cannot be pushed away or demurred. Demurred? That's how you say it better. It should not be something that is seen as offensive, but rather to be embraced. And what I believe is saying, being said clearly, that this is mostly exclusive to the conduct of the gathered church And in the gathering of God's people, that we should try to carefully follow the instructions that He he gives. And that means that more or less, wherever doctrinal teaching is given, or authoritative sort of teaching is given, or in leaderships of places of governance and that kind of thing, that we ought to order ourselves according to God's gendered design. Now, this is a limitation. There's no other way to say it. This is a limitation. And the question becomes, well, what does it mean when God puts in place a limitation that is not there based on the kind of limitations that we normally assume? Everyone knows that there's limitations, but we base them on things like merit, like it should be whoever is best. I, I like meritocracy. <laughs> I love competitiveness. 
But it turns out here that God doesn't choose that standard. So we should say, well, I guess, do we let God choose? Someone might say, well, roles like this and limitations should only be put into place based on complete and utter, utter fairness. should be equal, not only of opportunity, but of outcome. That's the spirit of our age. It should be, opportunities like this should be given based on equal opportunity and outcome. But the reality is that God, for whatever reason, does not choose that particular standard for his limitation. And Paul seems to give the reason, the reason that there is this limitation in place goes all the way back, not culturally designated, but all the way back to the way that God formed male and female. That it was God's intent and his design before sin ruined things and put things into misuse and abuse and misunderstanding, that there would be a male headship and leadership an example of that, even in the gathered church. And so, at Forex Midtown, we try to be as careful as we can, at least when we're here in this space, to follow the principle that God has put so clearly into place through the reading of Scripture. Not only in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but we believe in the whole of Scripture and its message concerning male leadership, in direct passages given in Ephesians in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. And this is the way, of course, that we organize ourselves. Now, some people would ask or would say, in the same way that maybe braided hair or costly pearls was so culturally defined to that one place, is it possible that there were problems in Ephesus that means that Paul had to put a very strict rule into place that limited things, but maybe not elsewhere? And so, the practice should be totally different. And the question that I would just ask would be things like this. First, if it was completely and only cultural and tied to Ephesus, it seems like Paul could have said that. In other words, the reason given for this limitation could have been very different. It could have been culturally defined. He could have told them. They all lived there. They knew. He could have been like, well, you know how it is around here and what happened last week. So we just need to be careful for a little while, but it's only because of you. But not only does he not go to a culturally defined reason for this limitation, he goes as far away from a specific culturally defined reason as he possibly could get. He goes all the way back to creation. Like, now you remember Adam and Eve. And he grounds it as far back as he could possibly go. A second reason I don't believe this is culturally defined only by Ephesus is because Paul gives these same instructions elsewhere in other places, in where he has left the church and left eldership, these same instructions are in place. Furthermore, I would ask questions like this. In order to believe this is only culturally defined for back then, we would have to be assuming and saying out loud that our culture now is completely and utterly different. In other words, what someone I believe is inferring or saying by that is, well, you know back then they had real problems with sensuality and sexual tension, and they had real problems in combativeness between men and women. And there was a lot of quarreling and arguing and chaos and disorder around the gender conversation. So, you know, that was Ephesus. And what I want to say is, and what about now? So, in some ways, sure, I would say, yes, it's culturally defined. The sin problems in Ephesus made him say and remind them, hey, remember the limitations it's just that I don't think we've gotten over those problems. We have much of the same happening here. And finally, the desire or the idea to say that this is culturally defined and therefore can be jettisoned and not taken hold of and not put into practice here makes me question and wonder, well, what else did Paul instruct to places like Ephesus that is culturally defined and we can jettison? I think it's instructive and we should pay attention that where the Word of God specifically pushes us and challenges us, we often look for ways out. In other words, no one is saying, now you know when Jesus said to care for the poor and to think about them, I just think it was specific to then. There were a certain kind of poor people then. You see, nothing, we, we don't have that same instinct. We don't say that when the men should lift holy hands without anger or quarreling, we don't say, well, that was just specific to them. They had a few angry men back then. 
so we should jettison this. In other words, I think that oftentimes when we think about cultural, cultural issues and want to leave it back there, it's because there's something in us that is uncomfortable and we feel like, I just don't know. And my invitation to you, and hopefully my own invitation to my own heart, is to say, let's not lean away where we feel the Word of God pressing in. Finally, and I'm going to spend the least amount of time on this, I said that there would be a discussion of the hope of the gathered church. And I believe you find that in verse 15, this phrase that has been debated and debated and debated and commented on and commented on and commented on, and I still don't believe has a wonderful explanation, if I'm honest. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness of self-control. I believe my best attempt at this, that what Paul is doing is he's calling back to two separate things. After describing Adam and Eve and the sin that occurs there, we recall that one of the first statements of the gospel in Genesis 3 is God's indication to Eve that though she had sinned and that the curse was coming upon her, that there would be death and there would be problems, that though she had sinned, that it would be her offspring, her seed that would crush the head of the serpent. That, of course, comes to fruition later, referenced by Galatians 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, Jesus came forth, and remember the little phrase, born of a woman. It is through this act, given uniquely and specifically to Eve, there's a limitation on men in the bringing forth of offspring, and it is through this that the Savior of the world comes. And so as odd as this sounds, I I do not believe that what Paul is saying is as long as a woman has a child, she's fine. I believe that he's referencing, if maybe in a a way that you have to, to think of the rest of Scripture, he's referencing the idea that though Eve sinned and was deceived, it's not as though she was set aside and no longer a part of God's plan. In fact, it was through Eve that the Savior of the world came. It is through Eve, it is through the bearing of children through women that all of us even exist, and ultimately that salvation comes. I believe that these passages, limitations like this, ordering like this, is only possible, is only possible when God's children, sons and daughters alike, take on the role, the ethic, the spirit of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is only through humility, through a desire to love and not to lord it over that we can focus on the fact that salvation has come for both men and women. And like he stated in the first chapter, at the beginning of chapter 2, it seems like Paul's main concern, here's the main concern, remember this, Paul's main concern is not to put men and women in their place. He's not organizing his closet. Paul's main concern is that the gospel goes forth and is rejoiced in as much as possible by men and women alike. And it turns out that sometimes because there's been conflict installed in the fallenness of this world, that the way that we act with one another obscures the gospel. We don't think about the hope, the salvation that has come through this wonderful gift of God himself, born of a woman. We don't think of these things because we're fighting so much about who gets which position and title. And I believe that Paul just says, listen, listen, put things in order, but not for for order's sake, I mean, you should for obedience' sake, but not just for order's sake, but we can't forget that we carry and steward a gospel. And whatever we do, however we act in here, we need to be respectable and modest, and we need to have holy lives, and we need to be peaceable, not angry, so that we can proclaim the hope of all of the world. So I mentioned earlier, we are a complementarian church. But if what people think about when they think about us, if what they receive when they come here is just solid complementarian teaching, we've failed. 
We are complementarian because we believe that it's God's given order to highlight Jesus the best we possibly can. It is not a matter of inferiority or superiority. In fact, it is the life of Jesus and his relationship with the Father that shows us that full value and dignity can exist right along submission. We don't like the word submission, but Jesus said so often, I seek the will of the Father. In the relationship between Father and Son, who were one and shared perfect dignity, for the sake of the hope of the world, for ransoming the world, Jesus submitted. And in him we do not see inferiority. He limited himself. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped in order to be the Savior of the world. Men and women were both called to imitate him and to rejoice in him. And I think ultimately that's what things like this are about. Let's pray. God, I ask for not only clarity of mind, we do want to understand these things, and I I so long to explain them well. But more than that, God, I pray for a sweetness of spirit and heart. Help us to see, maybe even to just imagine first, and then to see your church, men and women alike, serving one another, not concerned with power struggles, spotlights, but walking in dignity and in holiness, seeking to highlight not ourselves but Jesus. God, give us an imagination to see that and then the courage to follow your commands when you tell us how to to order ourselves. I pray, God, for all the questions that come from these things. I pray that there would be good and healthy conversations. May we benefit one another as we talk about Scripture. And ultimately, God, we thank you for your good design. We're not able to come up with a better one. Forgive us for so often thinking so. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.